Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Uxla podcast. It's been a while, uh, but today I have a special guest with us. It's Daniel Ho. Daniel Ho is an ukulele virtuoso, a slacky guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, composer, arranger, singer-songwriter, producer, audio engineer, and record company owner. He is a six-time Grammy Award winner, 12-time Grammy Award nominee, six-time Taiwanese Golden Melody Award winner, and recipient of multiple Hawaiian Music Awards. So I'm going to bring up on the screen here, Daniel Ho with me. Aloha, hey, Hi, Chris. Hey, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me on your program. I appreciate it. Now, just so everybody knows, this has been my fault, but the school year started last year. I was trying to work this out with Daniel last year, and then the school year started, and it was one of the hardest school years for teachers ever. Um, I think that's universal if you watch TikTok or, or any social media, you see all these teachers quitting. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, behaviors are, are different than ever after COVID and things like that. So Daniel was here in Minnesota. Well, I, I live in Wisconsin, but basically it's a suburb of the Twin Cities where I live. And Daniel was here for his first performance following COVID. And he was here with Danny Joy, and they did a set for, I don't even know if you remember that one, Daniel, where it was like the guitar organization for St. Paul. Yes. yes. And, something, and it, was a, it was a great set. My wife came with me. And, and what I found out in watching you, Daniel, which I didn't even know, is you are a classically trained musician. So you actually have all the theory background and everything that I do as, as a trained musician rather than somebody that just grew up as a virtuoso playing the instrument, which makes a difference. Um, you know, like, like we think about Mozart for a second. And Mozart, yeah, he was a child prodigy and everything but he was actually being trained in the art as well. Like not just by listening to others, but he was studying with his dad and getting all that knowledge. So it wasn't just this gift from God. It was a lot of work that went into it. So when we watched your concert, um, number one, there was singing. And then it's, it's music that was written making sense in terms of harmony and ideas of verse and chorus um, and being pleasing. And then it was, and then of course you're playing a whole bunch of different instruments, which we'll talk about as well. Cause we mentioned you're a multi-instrumentalist. It's not just ukulele. And so I just want to let you know that we really enjoyed that concert. And after that point, I, I contacted Daniel and said, Hey, could we do an interview? And you were gracious enough to say, sure. But then it was on me a whole year went by. So, um, is there anything in that introduction, which I took right off your website, that you'd like to tell us a little bit more about right off the bat? Uh, well, I'm not a virtuoso. I, I play the instrument. I grew up playing it since, I think, second uh, first grade uh, in Hawaii. It's just something we all do. And put it down for decades and went to a music school and studied a bunch of different instruments and classical guitar, classical piano. Um, which I'm not that good at either. And uh, <laughs> and the reason why I'm not is I've, I've kind of got a little, I'm not like self-diagnosed ADD, <laughs> but I, I take interest in, oh, I want to play that. I want to play that. And Prince was popular when I was growing up and he played all kinds of instruments. And I thought, I want to do that. And I want to sing and I want to try playing drums and um, never spent enough time on any instrument. So the way my music teacher, Ray Wessinger, uh, utilized my 
minimal knowledge in a bunch of different instruments was she said you should be a writer you should be a composer because you write for an instrument better if you understand it and you can actually play it so i don't write as well for a clarinet as i do for an ukulele because i don't know the break bb flat and you know those kinds of things so i went to music school and studied composition film scoring and the reason why i play instruments is because i couldn't get anyone to play it for me <laughs> out of necessity but I, I love to play but i'm sort of a writer first and then i play the instruments because the songs that's my only way to share them i guess i hear you because i consider myself an educator but i mean i can perform if i need to and, and of course, it, for you, it's more than need to because, you know, you actually go on tours and you, and you perform. But yeah, I, I guess I know what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I love music. I love learning about it. I, um, I, I am classically trained. I'm also trained in jazz. So the school that I went to, the Grove School of Music, is primarily a jazz, you know, big band and TV film composing school. It's no longer around. Um, and my teacher, Ray Wessinger, in high school was the former assistant music director at MGM back in the you know, 50s, 60s. And he retired to Hawaii and just wanted to have something to do. So he was a band director at St. Louis High School, where I went to high school. And he uh, taught me and privately and gave me advice and basically said, if you want to be a professional musician, um, you have to do everything I say. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Because in Hawaii, you know, it's an island and I don't have any resources to, like, what do I do? How do I start writing for TV or to score a film? Like, there's no path to that and, and no internet, no computers. So, you know, there's really no way to gain that information. But I was fortunate that Ray Wessinger happened to retire and teach at our school. So just for clarity, like, there's, there's obviously internet and everything there today. But you're saying when you were growing up, there'll be yeah. that one person that watches the podcast and goes, what? There's no internet in <laughs> I can just, I can just <laughs> see it now, right? Um, so growing up in Hawaii, um, you were there through high school and then came to California for college. Is that what happened? Uh, it was a professional music school. Okay. So Mr. Wessinger actually visited the Berkeley College of Music and the Grove School of Music. It, when I was a junior, going to be a senior, and he went there so he could tell me where I should go. And the reason why he told me to go to the Grove School of Music, which is a, at the time a small little building, two-story building on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, uh, was uh, he saw the energy. Um, the teachers are all professional uh, musicians, you know, TV writers and uh, singers and uh, instrumentalists, and I, and I studied with them, and a lot of the students actually got their foot in the door through their teachers. And he said, "This is the place you need to go." The program was very simple. It was a year-long program, and Dick Grove would teach us a different style each week, starting on Tuesday. Tuesday, he would teach us about the parameters, say Latin music. It's based on a clave pattern. This is what a bass does. This is what congas play. This is what, you know, bogo bells play. And these are the kinds of rhythms, the types of harmonies we use. And he sets up, uh, he calls them a set of restrictions. 
that define a musical style because it's restrictions within the 12 notes that we use, right? And right. these kinds of rhythms, is like Broadway, it's bass, boom, 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 you know, don't go, don't go, whatever, you know, Broadway music at the time uh, did. Uh, and on Thursday, he would assign us a song and it could be, okay, write an original song in this style using the, uh, the samba pattern or a partido alto rhythm or whatever, uh, or do a cover of Send in the Clowns or, you know, something like that for a Broadway uh, assignment. And then we had Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to write it, arrange it, copy it for the orchestra. And on Tuesday morning, he hired an orchestra or a big band or a combo. And you have 15 minutes to conduct. Hand, you know, you hand out your piece in the break and then you have 15 minutes to conduct and get a recording because the audio engineering class recorded the, the session. And if you made too many mistakes, you didn't write clearly, you, you wrote wrong notes and you had to fix it, you wouldn't be able to do that, you know, in 15 minutes. But he said, if you're a professional TV film composer and the studio is spending thousands of dollars, you know, every hour, you have to be perfect and you have to write things within the ranges of the instrument. So don't write French horn above C, you know, like don't do things or high C's on trumpets. Like very few people can play that consistently every time. Keep it to, you know, certain ranges. And this is what you have to do to be successful in it. And that was our grade. And at the end of the school year, we had a cassette tape of each session in a different style of music. And then we send that out and duplicate it and get work. It was, it was super, super difficult to do because you'd stay up all night copying parts, you know, especially, you know, four part saxophone things, you know, oh my gosh. And transposing each one up a six, up a nine, you know, and it was an incredible amount of work and, and students would complain and say, you know, this is too much to do in four days. And he said, that's right. And if you can't do it, quit. You should drop out right now because you'll never be a, a professional writer because that's what you have to do. And was that right after high school? Yes. So did you have any basic theory before jumping into that at all? Uh, uh, Mr. Wessinger, uh, was a jazz guy. He played in Stan Kenton's band, he played alto sax. And he taught me music theory from freshman year in high school. And um, I don't know if you know the actress Tia Carrere. She's in Wayne's oh, yes, World. Yes. So she went to school to the all girls Catholic school, Sacred Hearts Academy, two blocks away. I went to St. Louis High School. We had a big band at St. Louis called the Lancers. And back then, Linda Ronstadt had an album called Lush Life. And just an amazing album, Lush Life by Linda Ronstadt. And um, Someone to Watch Over Me and I've Got a Crush on You were two songs, you know, Gershwin songs that she sang on the album. My assignment with Ray Wessinger was to write vocal arrangements. And um, then we needed a singer. And that's how I met Tia. And so we've been performing together and recording together uh, since then, and we have an album live on tour coming out this year uh, from a tour we did last year. But um, yeah, so I had a, a big band, uh, jazz theory, 
throughout high school. I wasn't that good at it, but I knew, I knew, you know, the basics of it. And I also studied uh, classical Bach um, 18th century harmony with uh, uh, a friend of mine, Emmett Yoshioka, who owned Harry's Music Store in Hawaii. And he actually graduated with a degree in composition and conducting from USC. And he came back to run his family store, the Yoshiokas. And he taught me music theory and, um, you know, figured bass, all that stuff. Um, so my, the core, the essence of how I write is Bach voice leading. So I don't do parallel fifths. I do contrary motion, oblique motion, all that kind of stuff, and jazz harmonies. And you'll hear those two core elements in uh, everything I do. And the harmony method that I use is actually Dick Groves. And it's a, a, a book that I put together called Colorful Sounds, where I, I put it kind of put it together in, in, in my own way and how I've been using harmony for uh, 30 something years now. And uh, it's a way of simplifying complex chords by creating uniform modules. Um, it, it's a little bit to, to explain <laughs> uh, with just yeah, I hear you on a, on a podcast. I'll have to check that out. Is that book still available? Uh, at danielhole.com. Yes. Okay. And it I comes with that out. And it, it's an amazing way to simplify just briefly, you know, like if I had a fundamental, like a C chord, right? Yep. That's a bass C bass note. That's the fundamental. And then the overtones uh, happen above that. And you could add a triad like C to make a C chord. But if you wanted to add a chord tone and two color tones like the ninth and the major seven, you could just do a G chord. Yep. And that's a C major nine with no third. And if you wanted to get the raised 11th and get a cool sound, you could just play a D chord. And then you have the raised 11th, the 13th, and the 9th. So all I did was play a C triad, a G triad, and a D triad to create these different colors. And it's just a C chord. But all I'm thinking is a triad. And the neat thing about it is your ear is familiar with the triad. You know what it sounds like. When you're writing for a trumpet section and you want to play a, play a C, you know, 13 raised 11, just put a D triad in the triad, in the D triad in the trumpets and the G triad in the trombones and you have the full chord and they can tune very easily sitting next to each other, tuning a triad. They're not tuning half steps next to each other like that. And so that's kind of the basic concept of this colorful sounds method originated with the Groves and it's his, his way of doing harmony. I've never seen it anywhere else um, in any university or any other classical or jazz uh, way of doing it, but it totally works. And if you combine them all together, I'll just take these three triads and play a C chord. And then you can make any color you want, or you can take a shape like this, like a whole step and a four, and do this or arpeggiate it, you know, make different sounds. So it's really wonderful for film scoring, but just composing in general, it simplifies the complexities of harmony. Very cool. Very cool. And that's available on your website. Yes. Awesome. We'll check that out. So you did that for one year and then 
is that when you decided to stay in California or did you still continue to go back to Hawaii for a while? Second year I was studying film composition. So my first year was with Dick Grove. Second year was in the film composing program. My teacher was Buddy Baker, who was the former head of Disney. He did like Gumby and some of those old film scores, Bambi and things like that. And it was a wonderful program. My dad had a stroke uh, while I was studying film composition. I had to drop out and move back to Hawaii for two years to uh, take care of him. And I went to UH for about six months and studied a little classical piano and, and composition. Um, so I had to step away from my music a little bit and I still kept it going, but it was, you know, kind of a questionable time. And then in 1990, I moved back when I got a job working for um, John Henry, who was a, uh, is a futures investor and he owns the Red Sox. He owns the Red Sox. <laughs> but he liked music and he wanted to, you know, start a publishing company. And so I did that for six months in 1990. Uh, and then I kind of struck out on my own and got a, a record deal by sending out these cassette tapes and um, had a group called Kilauea, which is a contemporary jazz band. And my instrument was piano. And I wrote the music for the group and, and did that for five years, 1990 to 95. And then, and that was when I discovered the paying your dues <laughs> stage of the music business. That's like the first few years of your business where you sign a contract and it, let me just say nicely that it's just not in your favor and you can feel quite taken advantage of. And so I had a, you know, kind of a rough time during those five years. And when the contract ended, I fulfilled the whole contract, five or six albums, something like that, got out in 95 and said, I'm never going to have an agent, manager or record company ever again. And luckily Kilauea got some middle of the road, like top 10 on Billboard or, you know, R&R, Gavin, um, National Airplace, you know, enough that a distributor would accept me as an individual to distribute my CDs and cassettes at the time uh, in record stores like Tower, Borders, Sam Goody, Warehouse, and, and shops and chains around at that time. And that's how I got my start. And to this day, I still uh, work independently with my wife, Lydia, and um, have never had an agent manager or <laughs> anything of this sort. Not, not that they're bad. I mean, there's good ones out there, but um, a lot of times you kind of run into situations where, you know, it's not in your interest or artistic vision to do this type of thing, but it earns a certain amount of money. And so, you know, you have to do it or, and I wanted to keep, try to keep my, the art, art as pure as possible and as honest as possible. And I found that sincerity in, in what you do rather than, oh, I'm gonna write a song like this because it's popular on the radio right now. Um, of course you will have commercial success that way, but artistically, um, the intent is is not, I mean, it's pure if your goal is to, if money is your goal. And 
So I write songs like, you know, in 10 and a half over seven in the Indian polyrhythm <laughs> and put a partito alto rhythm over it like I did in the show in uh, with the Minnesota Guitar Society. Things that have zero commercial value, right? But for me personally, like it's the most fulfilling thing I could ever do because it's just, it's unique. It doesn't, it's not comparative in any way. There's no ukulele song that uses a traditional Indian polyrhythm and an Udu, an African Udu or a samba rhythm like a partido alto with jazz harmony and classical uh, melodic theme and development and counterpoint. And um, so interestingly is, is that if you approach music that way with that kind of intent and sincerity and, and very deliberate purpose, um, it becomes a part of who you are and it becomes like, I mean, you know, five, six, seven years ago when I did the song, it's like, I don't even know if it's going to work or if anyone's going to like it. But then it becomes something that I play at every single show and talk about because it means that much to me and it kind of catches on in its own way. And it's not something that people play <laughs> per se, but it could be played because, you know, I write it out and share the sheet music and things like that. So um, that's what I've discovered in the last 30 plus years of doing this. But in the case of even that, that's that sort of like just exercise in theory where it starts from, mm -hmm. you have so much theory background that it's still got a stronger framework in what our ear traditionally hears that when you listen to it, it isn't way out there. It isn't just experimental jazz, for example, like unstructured. It has, it has more than that. So you're you're still binding it, though. You know what I'm saying when you perform. So it you makes know, sense to the the uneducated, and that sounds really mean, but you know, to the uneducated listener that doesn't have that theory background, it still makes sense as music when you're writing it. If that makes sense. Yes. So the two two important things when you're doing something that's hasn't been done before in that way is uh, three things. First thing is I root it in traditional elements. So it is a real rhythm. The phrase is a tabla rhythm that, you know, people in India play and they do and they dance to it. Um, a partido alto is a traditional samba rhythm, but it's just played a 10 and a half instead of four, four. So I, <laughs> you know, figure out how to layer things. The melodies are all structured using theme and development the same way Mozart or Bach will do it. So I have a theme, you know, and then I develop it with diatonic transposition or augmentation, diminution, and inversion, those types of things. So there is a familiarity and it's derivative of the original theme and related. So there's a coherence melodically. Harmonically, all the notes resolve in the same way that, you know, any jazz or classical person would bop, would move a bass line. And it's linear and it's melodic. And so every element has depth. And my and then the third thing is my teacher, Emmett Yoshioka. When I was studying with him in high school, he said one thing that to this day I repeat every time, all the time, every time I do something. I, I brought him a, a song that I wrote and I thought it was so good. Oh, this is so, you know, it's so cool. And he looked at the score, string parts, and he goes, why did you write that? He points out a note. I said, oh, I don't know. I think it sounds good. And he said, 
don't ever write anything unless you can explain it. What, where does it come from? Is it from the theme? Is it an inversion of the theme? Is it an augmentation? Is it a diatype? What is it? Like, it has to make sense. And you could, I mean, when you, you know, you went to music school and you, you analyzed the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, you explained every single note, right? And, and it just, of course, that's an extreme because, you know, you can write things that are um, inspired and, you know, embellished and all those things, but it gives you a very strong core. And everything that I write, um, it could be a three chord song, two chord song for the ukulele to, you know, ocean dance or something like that. Um, I can explain every single note because that teacher imparted that wisdom on me way back when. And um, that's what I hope to do is write stuff that kind of sticks around and, and means something. So that's a great question. Thank you. And I talk forever about it, but it means the world to me. It's, it's good. Um, how do you think it'd be different today growing up where, where we grew up with CDs? In fact, I was, you know, I was in high school when the first CDs came out. Um, you know, what do you think it's like for, for a young performer songwriter today where everything is digital and you can be your own artist on Apple or Spotify? How do you think that would have changed your career if these, these tools would have been out back then when we were young? <laughs> I feel really lucky that I experienced part of my career with it and without it because uh, back then, even when I was going to Dick Groves, like um, the computer was starting to get a foothold in music and digital recording and things like that, but not really. We were copying by hand, so we had to use a fountain pen and a right angle and hold it above the paper and form our flags a certain way. Um, there's something very tangible about designing a house where you're you know, doing the plans by hand rather than using AutoCAD. And when you're writing a song and you're writing the notes and you're writing everything, there's something, I don't know, it, it, it's different. Um, I use Finale now, but it's also one, it, well, let me go back, you know, like songs like It's a Small World or, you know, like whatever the Sherman Brothers or whoever did back then. I mean, you actually had to know about music to do it. That's not required anymore. You can turn on a computer and you don't have to have a good sense of rhythm. You don't not you don't not need you don't need to be able to groove with a click like Steve Gadd. You can just have the computer do it for you, and it's all all done. You don't have to be able to produce a beautiful tone on an instrument. Your computer can do that. You don't have to sing in tune. Your computer can do that for you as well. So there's a lot of aids, but also it allows someone to skip a lot of steps in learning about music because it takes a while to get good at figured bass and and writing the way Bach voice leads his choral music it takes it takes some time to understand how every note in a jazz chord an extended chord resolves in a direction and to use it well in all 12 keys you know you don't just hit transpose and then it puts it in another key you know so there's a, a nice foundation there to do it in the old fashioned way. Um, technology allows us direct access to our 
consumers, our fans, which is wonderful because it eliminates the need for a middleman. You don't need a record company. You don't need a marketing, whatever, just use social media. Uh, so a lot of people that wouldn't, wouldn't be heard or get airplay because you know they don't have the million dollar marketing machine behind them uh, can and can get fans on their own. So a lot uh, of uh, independent, independent artists are getting exposure. So it, it's good. And in some ways, I feel like um, some steps are missing here and there, but it's ideal if you do have the musical knowledge and the background and understanding and then use all the modern tools. Uh, for example, I just heard a music production se um, session that I, I went to and I heard like a keyboard part where everything was just moving in. The chords were like this. Just triads, no open voicings, and just parallel everything. And I mean, I, I hear what I don't hear, certainly. If I go to a concert, I hear everything about what the person, how the person understands and approaches music. And I hear it when someone plays as well. If they pay attention to tone, or if they haven't studied how to produce a tone a certain way as a classical guitarist would, for instance, I hear that too. <laughs> or if someone hasn't studied rhythm and don't play a whole note, like a whole note. You play a whole note, two, three, four, one. You know, if it's one, two, three, four, one, you know, if you're not playing a whole note, I hear that, you know, so there's, um, anyway, that's a long answer. <laughs> I edited that up, but I, um, it's wonderful if you have a little bit of both a foundation and use a technology to assist that. Are you using any social media with your own work these days to promote yourself? I do. Um, I'm very slow to adopt technologies, very slow. Like it takes me years and I understand the value of Instagram and Facebook. In particular, that's what I use. Um, and I know I have to do it, but it's kind of difficult for me to make myself do it because I'd, you know, I'd rather be like finishing that song or you know, writing or recording the next thing, but you need to. It is essential and that is how it's done these days. And venues will look at how many followers you have. And that can be the, the determining factor whether or not you'll get the gig. Uh, so it, it's valuable. And I just talked to a friend about it yesterday. And he gave me great advice. His name is Christopher Tin. And he's a, a choral composer, composer, just incredible writer. And he said he struggles with the same thing. And his advice to me, which was reassuring, was that he struggles with social media as well. And he was told, oh, social media, do Q&As, do this, do that. And, you know, gain a big following. And he said, no, it's important because only one person, he's a composer. He wants to sit and write and create music that never existed before. He said, post things like live performances or things that are true to what it is you want to do. So you don't need to post about, you know, 
what he ate, or even if it's going to get him another follower. Um, he said, just post the things that, because that's what you will be known for. Do that if you don't want to do anything else. And and so going forward, as of today, <laughs> when I do get on you know social media every few days or so, I'm going to focus on posting just you know live performances and things of music, music videos, songs that mean something to me, and just not worry about the other stuff because there's a lot of other stuff. Are you doing TikTok yet? I signed up for TikTok a few years ago and I deleted the app. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I probably posted two things on there and then um I well, you know, my feeling about social media too is uh I feel like attention spans are only getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. So you go from you know, Facebook, where you can post as you know much as you want, as long as you want, and to Instagram limits you to a minute, and now they're trying to, you know, allow you to post full songs and things like that, and TikTok, which are little snippets of things, and I think it's just, it doesn't suit me. Um, you, it requires a lot of repetition, and you'll find it in music, too, because people's attention spans are so short, Repetition is the only way to lock someone in. And so they remember something because you only have two, three seconds. So a song would go, you say, you say, you say. Everybody would go, hey oh, hey oh, hey oh. And that's songwriting now. And it's valid because that's how you serve a community, you know, a society that has, you know, two seconds before they swipe to the next thing. Now go back however many decades and someone would write a theme that would last eight bars and oh. there's no repetition there there's diatonic transposition they're used of three different themes that are happening but who's going to wait eight bars to find out where it resolves so that was how people used to write. People don't write like that now because swipe, we're done here, you know? Uh, so if, if you listen to music, that's how it goes. Um, electronic music, like you could have a drum beat, one bar, one bar of drums, exactly the same snare sample and the hi-hat going and that could go on for six minutes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, so to clarify, you, you were playing ukulele since you were a little kid. When did ukulele come back to the forefront in your career and your life? 1996, somewhere around there. Um, I did an ukulele album uh, called Canoe Club and I just wrote and played a bunch of uh, original songs. And I released a song called Pineapple Mango and Along for the Ride. And it was released in Hawaii and they kind of became hit songs in Hawaii. And uh, in 1998 or so, I was in Japan doing a slap key. I used to play slap key guitar early on uh, after Kilauea, around 96, 97, 98. I was doing um, shows in Japan and someone said, you know, uh, can you do an ukulele record? A record company asked me. And so I did, 
and that kind of just went from there. Uh, the album was called Pineapple Mango. <laughs> and and um, it was my first attempt at singing, my first attempt at recording a vocal track, uh, The Best That I Can was the song. And from that point forward in early 2000s, then I started singing and playing ukulele more in my albums. And it's really, I'm not really uh, an alpha type of personality. So I just kind of follow where the music leads me. So I don't decide I'm going to do this and only do that. You know, it's like, oh, well, ukulele is becoming popular now. And, and people would hire me to play ukulele and less for slack key guitar and even less for piano. And contemporary jazz was just turning into smooth jazz and kind of declining, uh, at least for me. And now there's no smooth jazz stations around really. Um, and slap key was very popular in the late 90s, all the performing arts centers and things like that. And then less so and less so, and then ukulele started uh, taking off. And, and so it, the market kind of changed and then they just, it's just what I get hired to do. And, but if I'm playing an ukulele show, I always try to put in a little piano and slap key as well. And so I have like a baritone size six string, about a D-hole six string that's shaped like a tiny tenor um, with Romero creations. And, and I play that. So it's like baritone ukulele. Um, so I just kind of follow the, the market and I love the ukulele because you can take it with you everywhere and share it and teach workshops. And, um, you know, in later next month, we're going to Greenland to, <laughs> to play, <laughs> you know, shows out there. And it's just a, a wonderful, happy community, instrument of community. It's social. So the last gig I did was in Italy at Monopoly Ukulele Festival. And, and there were uh, Italian uh, opera singers and burlesque dancers and this, this group called Ukulele Tuesday from Dublin. And man, they, they have an ukulele festival there, the largest in the world, Ukulele Huli in Don Leary that they said they had 20,000 people show up to this. So I hope to go next year, but this group plays like U2 songs and Beatles songs and all that, and they sound so good. And they, and they played, they were the jam band. They played till four in the morning like every day, they were just there playing and just having a grand old time. And it really showed you how, how social and how joyful this instrument is. So, yeah. Now I wanted to, first of all, I have a, I make play along videos of songs and I put them out there for educators to use there on YouTube. It generates no income because the copyright holders get all the profit from <laughs> What, what, it's great, right? Um, so I do have a play along for Pineapple Mango ready to go that I've been waiting to publish until after this interview is done. Oh, right on. So just so you know, that'll be out there and people can play along with you on that recording. That'll be coming. Um, how many different instruments do you actually play? And do you do any wind, do you do any wind instruments at all? Uh, yes, I, I don't do any wind instruments, uh, but I play all of the rhythm section instruments. So I... Uh, play drums, I, but not so much drums because I do it in the form of percussion. So I, I play like ipu heke, which is a traditional uh, Hawaiian a percussion instrument made from a gourd, or 
Um, I have bongo lele, which is an ohana instrument, or shaker lele, which is ohana shaker. And um, so I do the percussion. I play bass, I um, piano, keyboards, and string instruments. So ukulele, guitar, and anything that you know you pluck in, <laughs> like a dosh palur or a mandolin or something. I'm not a mandolin player, but if I need you know a part, I'll play it. Um, it, it's something that evolved uh, back starting in 1993. Um, as I was doing records, I realized like it, it's really expensive to go to a studio to hire session musicians at 100 an hour. And I thought, well, you know, I my technique, my um, string instrument technique is classical guitar. So I took for five years when I was nine years old. And Pepe Romero was my hero, you know. <laughs> and but I approach. Um, all of the instruments in a finger style way in my left hand technique is just anything I do. It's all classical guitar. Um, and can I ask for clarification? What mean by finger style? Because there's a couple different meanings of that. Would people know what do you mean by finger style? Oh, so um, plucking with your fingers like that. Um, and assigning one finger to each string. Most uh, of I do. Uh, well, so. For classical guitar, you only use these four. Um, and I just put one on each string and I'll, you know. So when I'm singing, I don't I don't have to look down. I I play like that, but if I'm doing like linear passages, of course I I yeah, primary primarily use these three uh, fingers and have like patterns that I use. So I mean one people some people use you know, like finger style in terms of that, like, like instead of strumming, you're generally uh, picking a pattern with with your right hand. And then there's some people that call playing, you know, like tablature, like written out music and melodic stuff is finger style. So that's why I just wanted to ask the clarification. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, like full out like a, a Jake composition where he's, you know, playing Bohemian Rhapsody. They'd call that whole process finger style. So there's a couple different meanings that people use by that. So that's why I was asking the clarifying question. I generally, it just, for me, it refers to the right hand, like finger style or strumming. And I strum if I'm doing a vocal song. But other than that, everything that I, I compose, you know, instrumentally is all finger style. Um, probably because, you know, ukulele is traditionally strummed more often than um, plucked finger style. And I just wanted to embrace the classical side, which is really neat. You know, when I met Pepe Romero Jr. and his background is all classical. So when he started building ukuleles in a Spanish style, uh, they're like miniature classical guitars. And like, that's the tone I want. <laughs> I want that sound, you know? And so that's what led to Romero Creations and the Tiny Tenor and um, all the instruments that, I think we have 12 different uh, instruments for Romero Creations now. And um, this year, post pandemic, as factories are starting up again, we have uh, five new designs that are gonna be debuted at NAM in January. This is a perfect part <laughs> for me to ask this question, which is, um, You've had a few different professional relationships with manufacturers over the years. I know that you had one with Koaloha for a while. Mm -hmm. Was that your first or 
has that changed over the years? Do you do you still talk with the people at Koaloha? Or is most of your work now with the Romero family and, and their work? I haven't in a, in a few years spoken with um, Koaloha. Um, it started in mid nineties actually with the Canoe Club album. So I didn't have any ukuleles. I might've had one and um, uh, got a bunch of ukuleles uh, to do that album and met them and, uh, you know, was endorsing them for many years. And then um, around, well, Romero Creations has been around since 2013. So this is the 10th uh, anniversary. But prior to that, Pepe and I met probably a couple of years earlier and um, really hit it off. He is very open-minded. Well, he wasn't open-minded <laughs> when we first met. He built classical guitars. He wouldn't even do a cutaway. Like, you yeah, go look for someone else because I don't do cutaways. It's not traditional, you know. Because his family is the Romero family, you know, Pepe Romero, you know, Celendonio and the guitar quartet and all that. So it's very traditional. And, you know, his guitars are like $14,000, Brazilian rosewood, and just done in the way he studied, you know, in, in Europe. Um, but his family, his daughter asked him if he would build an ukulele because, you know, it's popular. So he did. And one day, uh, a mutual friend in, said, you guys got to meet. You have to meet. And one day he came over to my house and he brought four ukuleles, tenor ukuleles that he made. And in this very living room that I'm in now, and he came over, he brought the ukulele, he said, I'd like you to hear these instruments, try them out. And they were like koa, one was Brazilian rosewood and spruce, another was uh, Italian maple with a cedar top. And these are handmade instruments. And it was so delicately built and so light. If you held it to a light, you can see through it. You can see in the Italian maple, you hold it to a light or the sun, you can see pink, a pink color. Like it's like 1.6 millimeters thick. I mean, it varies because he tunes each board. And what they were were four miniature classical guitars, Spanish heel, French polish, done the way that he's always built guitars. And um, it's a funny story and Pepe tells his story too, but I didn't say anything for like 10 minutes. I was just sitting on the floor, he's sitting on the floor, I'm playing these instruments and like I cannot believe the overtones, the resonance, the volume, I can do a fortissimo rest stroke on every single fret and it doesn't buzz and it's in tune, like I don't understand this, this is outside of my understanding, you know, of what the instrument is capable of and um, Finally, I, Pepe, Pepe asked, like, oh, so, you know, what do you think? And I, I just told them, these are the best ukuleles I've ever played in my whole life. I've never heard anything like this before. And he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, I thought you hated them, you know? <laughs> That's what he, he honestly thought I hated them. And, and then he said, well, if you like, and he said, one of these that you like. And... Uh, I said, well, in particular, I love this Brazilian rosewood spruce top because Brazilian rosewood has really full low end and the spruce top has a lot of clarity. So it's a common wood combination for classical guitars. 
And I said, this one in particular has just unbelievable tone. Like if you record it solo, it feels 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. And he said, well, if you like it, you know, you can, you can have it. <laughs> and to this day, every single recording I've done is done on that one instrument. And it sits in a case, it stays home, never goes on the road because they're so, they're pretty fragile. Um, if you rest your pinky on the French polish, there's a dent, like a scratch, right? Because it's such a thin finish. And the thin finish allows the quick frequencies, which are the overtones, the high frequencies to, to ring out. I do a very close miking with two AKG 451 microphones in an XY pattern, like six inches from the instrument. So if you even, move your finger like this on the fretboard or something, you hear it, it's really uh, detailed and those overtones come out and they're not present in you know, other kinds of instruments and things like that. So um, that's kind of how I started to get to know Pepe and then he introduced me to his father because we came up with a, a parlor size uh, six string model and that his father endorses, it's his model. And we sat in his living room in Del Mar. And I've been a fan of Pepe Romero Sr. since I was 10 years old. I started when I was nine and you know, 10, 11, I started learning about Segovia, Andres Segovia and John Williams and all those, Julian Bream, all these great artists and Pepe Romero. And I just remember being beside myself. I couldn't believe I was actually meeting him in person. Not only did we meet in person, but we played romance together, that classical piece. And um, his father, Celandonio, composed an obligato for it, which Pepe Sr. played. We filmed it, we recorded it, and I went home and I mixed it just because and ended up releasing it on iTunes, which led to a whole album, um, Aloha España, of classical guitar and ukulele duets where we're playing various instruments designed by his son and built by his son for different kinds of songs. For example, when we play Canarios, which is a fast song, da -da 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 I'll play a, a maple ukulele with a cedar top because it's bright and lively. Or if I'm playing a slow, you know, ballad or something like that, I'll use the Brazilian rosewood. And so it was a neat collaboration between Pepe Jr., who EQ'd, you know, tailored these instruments to the particular songs to, you know, working with Pepe. And then for myself, the hardest part, going back to what you were talking about being a composer and a player um, was writing music that didn't exist in the style of an intent of the original composer or getting as close to it as possible. So writing an ukulele part for Leyenda or Ricardo's Della Alhambra, right? There's no ukulele part, it's a solo guitar piece. But I took the themes from the composers and spent a couple weeks creating a counterpoint completely derivative of the original themes. And, um, you know, Pepe was, he liked it. He said, this is great. You know, and we did an album and some performances together. And, and so if I didn't understand, you know, didn't have all the training from my classical and jazz, mainly classical, teachers back then, I wouldn't have been able to do that album. So there's a lot of value in that side of music. You know, technology cannot do that for you, but soon AI will be able to do that. And I'm like, <laughs>
Yeah, it's it's crazy what AI can do. Um, a couple more questions about the Pepe Romero and the Romero Creations. So when you started working with Romero Creations, were they making still just standard looking ukuleles? And then you shifted to sort of your design? Or did that start from the very beginning with Romero Creations? That's a great question. So Romero Creations didn't exist. Uh, Pepe was only building instruments by hand. And he built four tiny tenor uh, prototype. I mean, the first run was four tiny tenors. And it was African rosewood and spruce top. And they immediately caught on. Because the concept of this instrument is taking a full tenor ukulele, 17-inch scale, and taking all the qualities that make an ukulele special and you know, amplifying them. So um, it's actually the overall length of a concert, which is 23 inches. So it fits, you know, you can sit in a car and play, you can sit on a plane, it fits under the seat in your airplane or train. And the headstock is very small because it doesn't contribute much to the sound. And, you know, this body is based on a lute, so it doesn't have a waist, which we don't use the waist on an ukulele like we do on the guitar to rest on your leg. So we have more cubic volume in the body. It has reverse fan bracing, a larger sound hole. So it's like singing with your mouth open. Anyway, we took all these elements, put them together in this instrument, and it caught on. And Pepe couldn't build them fast enough. So I introduced him to my friends Smiley, Kai, and Janet, who own Ukulele Source uh, retail store in San Jose. And He's actually an aerospace engineer, retired, that you know, is doing ukulele for fun. And they got together and formed Romero Creations so they could produce handmade ukuleles. Like this is a Romero Creations, it's not a, it's not a, um, a Pepe handmade, uh, but they're all handmade, uh, no CNC's machines. And um, they built these instruments and they've been, they've, you know, been doing that ever since. So actually the tiny tenor, started the company just to fill the, the need. And uh, that's how it came about. So did, was, was the idea of that, you know, that lutish body or the triangular body, was that yours or was that Pepe's or who came up with that original shape? Um, it was my idea um, because I wanted to get as much cubic volume in the smallest package. So, when you, for it, I, I give you the example of corrugated roofing, they bend the metal to stiffen it, to make it stiffer. When it's not bent, it's actually, the sides are actually soundboards too. Like if you tap an ukulele, it's, the pitch is very high and tight. And on an engineering side, we, I mix and master albums, uh, you have resonant frequencies, and those are peaks in the resonant of an instrument. And every chamber on a ukulele creates a resonant frequency. This is all lower bow. So the transition from pitch to pitch is actually quite even. It doesn't have these bonks. So if you play an ukulele here like a honk, honk or a bonk like that, those are different um, chambers in the body resonating. And what we have to do as engineers is to control those frequencies with parametric EQ. And by controlling them, you can get the whole instrument to be louder and more even. So we're always looking for evenness. In a live setting, those resonant frequencies are the first frequencies that will feed back. So this instrument naturally has very little feedback and it records 
almost, as they say, straight out of the box. But you can just record it and it has a very even sound. And that was what I was after sonically. Um, this board here is the main part of the soundboard uh, because the energy comes from the, sat the strings vibrating the saddle. Um, in this case, the string through the body design, oh, this week, um, has the string actually touching the soundboard. So it has a direct connection vibrating the soundboard. And this area here is so large, it's as large or bigger than a tenor ukulele because Pepe pushed the sound hole this direction to allow this bass frequency and this much vibration to move. He does a reverse fan bracing to allow the center of the drum head or the soundboard to move as much as possible. The sound hole is larger to allow the sound to be released. The back has a 15 foot radius, so you have no standing waves. So in a recording studio, you have no parallel walls because a parallel wall will send the sound back and forth and that's called the standing wave. It's kind of a buzzy sound that you hear in your shower or in a church, you know. <clears throat> and we put all these elements or, or um, things together, what I understand about sound and what he understands about building uh, as a luthier and, and, the, and the woods, like spalted mango is a very warm, full, rich sound. Um, koa sounds a lot very similar to mahogany, which is a ubiquitous tone wood. And those are the three woods that we use. Mahogany, it's a little less expensive. It's a great tone wood used in many instruments, guitars. and um, Koa, which is associated with Hawaii. And spalted mango, which is very ornate and unique. Like you'd never find another one that looks like this particular instrument. Um, so I guess, you know, to explain mango, an ukulele, if you if you look at a basic car graphic EQ, you have bass, middle, and treble, right? Mm -hmm. So ukuleles by nature of you know its design and small body naturally has a lot of mid-range frequencies, which is you know around 1000 hertz, 900 to 1200 hertz. And not much bass, because it's not a very big, you know, chamber, and not that much treble either but it has a lot of mid-range. So spotted mango wood is a little warmer. It doesn't have as much mids in it. And it has you know, maybe a little more fullness on the low end, you know, maybe not so much similar in the high end. I wouldn't say it has any high end. But if you have the natural curve of an ukulele combined with the natural tone of a mango wood, you end up with something a little more even. So we think about every aspect right down to the strings, you know, Pepe has a line of strings <clears throat> that are, you know, the instrument is designed to optimize. Um, and we think about everything, every element that contributes to anything. And incrementally, they each make a difference, having the string touching the soundboard. And it's actually easier to change the strings because you don't have to wind it and hold it tight while you wind the other side. You just, you know, grab it through mm -hmm. the sound hole, tie a knot, and then just let it go. But that adds a little bit of resonance. Having you know no waste adds a lot of resonance. That that's probably the biggest deal. Reverse fan bracing adds more resonance. A larger sound hole adds a more open sound, and the cumulative effect of all of these uh, elements makes the tiny tenor what it is. And and so we've had the excess soprano, and you know the ST concert, which is a tiny tenor in a concert scale, and variations of this design and the D-hole six strings, which are 
six-string baritone, but instead of 19-inch scale, we do 21-inch scale. So we can put more tension and draw more sound out of the body. Um, and, it, and it doesn't sound like a harder, you know, travel guitar, because it doesn't have a waist, it's not stiff. It sounds big and warm. Hmm. And, um, this is what we discovered over, over the years as we designed and we're always designing for purpose, not aesthetic so much. Aesthetics, yes, because we don't want it to look ugly. So Pepe did this shape. This is the original shape unchanged from his prototype. It's exactly what it is and has always been. Um, but the concept is everything we discussed about putting his you know, knowledge together as a luthier, what can and cannot be done, and, and as an audio engineer, what we're looking for. I'll just ask you two other quick questions. Um, one is on, you had a really great interview with Kamuk Ukulele Stories. So anybody that, that wants to hear even more about, you know, your experience in your life, um, definitely go check out that podcast because it's out there. You said in that podcast that you were going to be doing more producing, like life had just kind of dropped on you, like doing more producing for yourself and for other people. Is that still true? Is that still happening? Or with COVID turning into the endemic instead of the pandemic and shifting, are you back to doing what you did before? That's a great question, Chris. Uh, can can I ask you what year that article came out? Oh, <laughs> I think that must have been two years ago that that, that was a, it was a podcast with, oh. with Cam Muke. Okay, okay. Um, so it was during the pandemic. I think it was like during, yeah, while everything was shut down. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. Okay. That's a great question. Um, I've taken a, a, a new direction since then. Um, the first five months of the pandemic was just surreal. You know, I, I didn't do any, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what to do. So I was just slowly moseying along, figuring, okay, you know, I heard in the news that in Hong Kong or whatever, they were saying like, you can have permanent lung damage from COVID. I mean, you can die, of course, but you may never be able to sing again, right? And I thought, you know, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to track the vocals for these two songs that I've been singing in the shower for years. I recorded them before, but I never liked how I sang them. Well, I didn't record both of them before, but one of them was So Long As, and the other one is Will You Be There? And it's on my album, Playing Through Changes, which is, you know, a jazz phrase, but also playing through the changes of the pandemic. And so I recorded the vocal parts. And then slowly, you know, finish the tracks. But I figure I better get this down in case I catch it. And if I survive and never able to sing again, at least I'm done with that. That, you know, like whatever. I sang everything I wrote, you know. So I did that. Then I did the record. And I thought I'd get into just, you know, staying home and producing more because I never saw how live performance would come back in the way that it did. And I think it kind of hasn't in that it's so expensive to travel now. You actually have to get to, you know, we did a show in Washington, D.C. at the um, Museum of Art, National Gallery of Art. And we had to fly the whole band in the day before because we weren't sure that the flights, they could have been canceled. And if we booked the flight the day or whatever, we may not even make the gig and, you know, so you got to do all the hotel, the flights, the hotels, so expensive. 
um, prior to that, when we did the Minnesota Guitar Society, you know, you can only book every other seat. So you're mm -hmm. paying for the full venue at 50% capacity max. Um, people are still, were at the time, still afraid to come out in public because you're actually risking your life. <laughs> so <laughs> with all these, I don't see how, you know, things are going to go back to the way they were. And it's kind of close to the way they were, but, you know, everything's a lot more costly. Um, but um, what I did decide to do was to learn about filming because uh, I work with Yamaha. I've been a Yamaha guitar artist for 20 years. <laughs> and uh, they said, you know, doing quality video is probably going to be the most valuable thing you can do during the pandemic and beyond. Because with social media, to put out a, a, a video, you know, with a beautiful tone and a beautiful sound and close up and, you know, 4K and that, well, maybe not 4K, but, you know, just nice colors and something that will engage people will be valuable and remain valuable. Because my problem at the time was I didn't want to do Zoom, live performances on YouTube, Facebook things, because there's dropouts, there's very poor quality, very poor sound. And I'm standing in front trying to fit the ukulele in the frame and put my hands on playing this side and do that. And it wasn't the way that I wanted to present the music and have it live on indefinitely. So I bought a couple of uh, like a Sony A7S III and Sigma ART lenses and LED lights and um, really Final Cut and DaVinci Resolve. And I really embraced um, learning about uh, video production. And my friend David Ho, who taught me how to audio engineer, moved from Hawaii with me back in 1986, um, owns a post-production business here in Los Angeles. So he, you know, edits movies and does sound for movies. And he taught me, like, has been mentoring me even until this day, like he's been teaching me how to color grade and how to, you know, how to add animated effects to things and whatever. And so that's my new direction and it's sort of reverse film scoring it's kind of odd in school i studied film scoring but what i'm doing is taking my music and scoring them with visuals where can people see that work uh youtube i have a um youtube channel daniel Ho creations or daniel Ho or something like that and i put on little clips i haven't released a lot of the majority of it yet because i'm I don't want to just kind of put up little videos just yet. I want to sort of package it into maybe a documentary or a story about something. So I have a video coming out in, in a, a couple months with a Ugandan artist, Eddie Kenzel. And it's a Ugandan Hawaiian song about the ukulele and um, edited it and, uh, you know, fil filmed it and things. And so, it's really become a passion of mine. I watch a film every night or at least part of a film and I study, study the grading, the teal versus orange or green and yellow and how they frame things, how they do camera movements and um, set exposures and things like that. And it's the same thing as engineering music. You're working with waveforms, but instead of sound, it's light. And you still have foreground, middle ground, background, distance. You have bouquet, you have sharpness. You have saturation, desaturation, you have wet and dry, you know, you, you 
actually developing. As an engineer, you develop ears that can hear um, 196 hertz, for example, which is loading, you know, your G string, and you learn what frequencies will shape the sound in such a way to make it more pleasing or edgy. And in color grading, you need to learn how to see not just the color, but you have to understand if it's in the mid, in the midtones, the highlights or shadows, and using S curves and shaping the amount of content in each. And it's exactly the same thing, just a different medium and all the same principles apply. So <laughs> it's kind of fun, really. So you're, it's another rabbit hole you're going down. Yes, yes. I watch a lot of YouTube instructional videos on Final Cut and, you know, the A7S 3 And just to learn how to use the autofocus on an A7S 3 is like, you know, two hours of video time to study, you know, how to keep it locked on a subject and let it go at a certain point and how it works and how to set parameters and, you know, like every bit, every bit of it is just... Hey, while you were playing, I had one other quick, I mean, sub question, which was, are all the Romero creations tuned low G when they come out of the factory? Yes, they are. Um, because I, I play pretty much low G all the time because as a classical guitarist, it makes sense. The traditional reentrant tuning, um, you know, I think the banjo is the other instrument that has the reentrant tuning, but What's important to me with the low G is I oftentimes use it as kind of like a bass, um, but it also gives you a fourth more range, right? So if a song starts sol, do, if you have a high G, the lowest you can play that song is in the key of F. And I use it as a bass like, So I, I use a Loji. Now we have a, a model coming out with Kiwaya ukuleles, which is the biggest, they're 103 years old, the biggest uh, manufacturer brand in Japan. Uh, and it's a traditional soprano and it has a high G. And then we have some of the excess sopranos and tiny tenors and things like that released with Yamaha is the distributor for remote creations in Japan and high G is popular. So they have a few of those models with high G, but you can just take off the low G string and put a high G on any of the instruments. But, you know, Pepe coming from the classical side and myself as well. And I grew up listening to Otasan. So he uses low G and that's how I first got introduced to it. And now here's the final question, which is, and this is this is the maybe the silly one, but when I grew up, there was a real famous famous Hawaiian artist named Don Ho, who you know, in fact, he was on the Brady Bunch. That's how I often like remind people. Um, he was playing an ukulele with somebody else, and he picked up an ukulele. I mean, he is famous for like Tiny Bubbles is his biggest hit. How often do you get asked, or are we at an age where people don't even remember who Don Ho was? Did you ever get asked if you're a relative or? if you knew him or anything like that? Uh, many times, it was maybe 20 years ago, every single gig, someone <laughs> would ask me. And in the last decade or so, uh, not very often because many people don't know who he is. I mean, maybe the generations have changed. 
So not so much anymore. Interest. That's a great question. But yes, early on, like when I was first playing with Kilauea, people would ask me at every single show. See, the two people that I grew up knowing ukulele about, and I didn't start ukulele until I think it was 2006. Um, in fact, it was, no, it was later than that, 2016. What am I thinking? Um, so for me, ukulele didn't start in my life until 2016, really. I knew about it growing up, but the two people that I knew ukulele from were Tiny Tim, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and of course his strange approach to the ukulele, and then Don Hall. So I knew it as both sort of this trick gimmick instrument and then also as a traditional instrument. I mean, those are my two sort of mindsets with it growing growing up until I, be, you know, went back to it as an adult. So, I mean, and today even people don't know who Tiny Tim was. Oh, you know? yeah. It's so it's, yeah, it's the same thing. Generations. Yeah, and that generation is, and maybe for better or worse, depending on which way you think about it, right, with Tiny Tim. But yeah, I, so I was going to ask you that as well. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We appreciate learning all about you. Where can people find all of your stuff? Uh, I have a website at danielhole.com. And I'm also on Instagram, Daniel Hole Creations, and on Facebook, uh, Daniel Hole Creations, or my personal page is Daniel Hole. And watch for your YouTube channel with more stuff in the future. Yes, yes. I have a lot of videos on my YouTube channel, actually. Yes. All right. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, everybody, for following along. We hope you're having a great day. And I'll be back soon with some more Yuke stuff for you.